When you notice how the city's wide, tree-lined boulevards provide symmetrical views of magnificent architecture in the heart of Paris, much of the credit goes to Baron von Haussmann. He led massive reconstruction projects in the mid-1800s that replaced crowded medieval neighborhoods with grand avenues, elegant parks, elaborate fountains, and a long-needed underground sanitary sewer system. And yet, as our next guest points out, the city's history of redesigning itself with massive public works projects goes back to the vision of French rulers in the 17th century. They wanted to turn Paris into an urban model for the civilized world. As Joan Dijon describes in her book How Paris Became Paris, The Invention of the Modern City, it took a century to transform Paris into the mythic place we know today. Joan is a trustee professor at the University of Pennsylvania. She's written nine books so far on French history, literature, and material culture. She's here to tell us how Paris became Paris. Joan, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be talking to you. Now, Joan, you know, I've always thought when you go to Paris, it seems like it, it came of age after the revolution uh, in the 1800s, in the, in the age of uh, Baron Haussmann, uh, when all the grand boulevards were made and so on. But the case of your book is that Paris, the elegance of Paris, and Paris being established as as the sort of cultural capital of Europe, goes back long before that. Yes. Uh, the whole project of Paris is one that gradually takes shape in the course of the 17th century, and a city was built up between 1600 and 1700. Paris took a shape that is essentially the center of Paris, the shape it still has today. Now, when we look at the, the cityscape of Paris, it's just you can't help but take a photograph on every street corner. Uh, there's sort of an ethic there, and, and it seems like they have made a point to not obliterate beautiful viewpoints and boulevards lead to grand monuments and there's a sort of a, a homogeneity in the architecture with the, the equal height of the buildings and, and the beautiful uh, roofing. Talk a little bit about the cohesiveness of Paris and, and where that came from. In the 17th century, various projects begin. There are two main projects in the 17th century. The first is a real citywide project created by Louis XIV, his ministers, and the two men he named to be chief architects of the city of Paris. And they planned together, with weekly meetings on this, a complete redesign of the cityscape of Paris. So that was much was dictated, the, the new kinds of streets, the width of streets, etc. And then the second body that came into all this was the newly formed Royal Academy of Architecture. And the, head, the first head of the Royal Academy of Architecture was one of the two architects planning the redesign of Paris, and they dictated, the Royal Academy and its members dictated, literally, all kinds of things from how high buildings had to be, the limit of heights, the minimum and the maximum, how much width you had to have in city squares, and if your square was this wide, how high the buildings around it had to be, how wide streets had to be, minimum, maximum. So you have a whole sense of a city's a real plan for a city and rules for a city being developed in the course of the century. So this was in the 1600s, and this is the same time Louis XIV was expanding Versailles, and I would have thought, I've heard he spent half the year's income of the entire country of France, I mean the most populous, wealthiest country in Europe. He invested half of the annual income of that country in constructing Versailles, and when you go out there, you can you can imagine why. I mean, it was the rerouted rivers to power the fountains and so on. But at the same time, you're saying he had a parallel uh, venture going on and turning his capital city into a grand city as well. And that project for Paris began long before Versailles really kicked in, even before it began. Hmm. He became, he re-enters Paris with his uh, wife in 1660. From then on, the court only moves out to Versailles in the early 1680s. So he has over two decades 
during which his life is Paris-based. And very early on, his chief minister, Colbert, warned him. He said, <laughs> look, that Versailles project is not going to be the measure of you. Great kings have to also have great capital cities. Wow. Now, when I think about Paris from that era, I think of the Pont Neuf, the new bridge, which was actually, it was new at the time, but it's one of, I guess it's the oldest bridge now, the one that connects the Ile de la Cité with the left and the right bank, and then also the Place des Vosges, the most beautiful square in the city where you just feel like, I, I, I lived here in a previous life, and I must have been an aristocrat. Uh, talk about the Place des Vosges and the Pont Neuf as part of this whole vision of Paris. Both of those projects, I'm so, I love those projects, too, I have to tell you. It's still my favorite square, too, and I wish I lived there in a present life, much <laughs> less a past life. But both of those are projects that were already there. Those are projects that are from Louis XIV's grandfather, Henry IV. The first thing he did when he managed to conquer Paris after the wars of religion in the, at the very end of the 16th century was to complete the project of the Pont Neuf the new bridge, which had been suspended for several decades, and then he started the project for the Place des Vosges. So it's like Louis XIV was building upon that. Uh, those were the seeds of the greatness of right. Paris, maybe. Right, I think so. His grandfather's grandson he was. Hmm. Bridges are interesting because, uh, you know, we've got London Bridge, we've got the Ponte Vecchio in Florence, and we've got, of course, Pont Neuf in Paris. How was Pont Neuf special? Those are two great examples because both the Ponte Vecchio and London Bridge, which are already in existence at that time, were bridges typical of the period. That is, they were built with houses on both sides. So the whole bridge itself, the center, was a very narrow thing. And the Pont Neuf is a completely different thing. It was the first major urban bridge built without houses. So were, were they having houses on the bridge like we see at the uh, old bridge in Florence and, of course, the historic uh etchings of London Bridge. They had shops and little houses all along the bridge. So you walked across the bridge, and if you hadn't been there before, you might not even know you're on a bridge. You feel like you're on a street lined with houses. What was the economic purpose of having the houses on the bridges? Well, the constructions paid for the construction of the bridge. So the houses and the property, the rental of, of that, paid for the actual building of the bridge. Okay, so Henry IV in Paris was going to say, hey, we don't need to grovel for the money. The state will pay for this, and we'll have a grand bridge that's not littered with shops on it. Exactly. Although he did have to do a little work. He didn't have a lot of income in the early 17th century, mm. in the early 1600s, so he taxed all the wine coming into the city of Paris. <laughs> that's how he paid for the bridge. So the drunkards of Paris paid for the new bridge. That's no question about it. That's well, what people said. Why not? Joan Dijon is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Her latest book is called How Paris Became Paris, The Invention of the Modern City. Joan teaches Romance Languages at the University of Pennsylvania. She's written nine books on French literature, history, and culture, including The Age of Comfort. She divides her time between Philadelphia and Paris, where she lives on a street where the number four bus service began in 1662. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. And Barrett's calling in from Dallas in Texas. Barrett, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Uh, it's uh, great to talk with you. Just a, a follow-on question in reference to uh, Place de Vosges. One of the things I think that's uh, really striking about that area is that you come from sort of the, the narrow streets of the, the Marais, and I'm just curious as to how intact kind of the, the surrounding neighborhood is and if that was much of the same feeling that you would have gotten at the time as you kind of walked from the narrower streets into that uh, public space. Yes. Much of that neighborhood is absolutely identical. Not at, when the Place des Vosges was inaugurated in 1612, but after that, immediately after that, Henry IV then Louis XIII start a plan to rebuild this area of Paris that continues through the century. So by, say, 1650-1660, at that point, the surrounding neighborhood looked very much as it still does today. 
You know, those are the tangled streets where it was easy for um, malcontents during difficult times who wanted to start a revolution could get together and put up barricades, aren't they, Joan? Yes, I think they were pretty good at doing that through much of Paris. Yeah. The Civil War in the middle of the century, you know, it's pretty easy to barricade what you want to barricade if you're good. Now, I understand that when we go to Paris today, we see these grand boulevards and we think that's so elegant and people-friendly, but actually it was uh, just good military tactics because the government needed to keep the hungry, angry people down. And if you have long boulevards, it's easy for the cannon filled with little chains and nails and what Napoleon called grape shot to just spray down that big boulevard and and knock all the people down. Is that your understanding of the origin of those boulevards? In the 19th century, yes. However, the 17th century, Louis XIV, one of his initial plans for Paris was to create the original boulevard, and that was a completely different conception And that was an uh, elegant thing, not a military strategy, but an elegant exactly. thing. And those exactly. boulevards would lead to grand monuments because that's one of my favorite things about Paris is the way the streets sort of just draw your eye right to you know the Pantheon or whatever. Absolutely. The first project for a street, the very young Louis XIV, before he returns to Paris with his bride, he orders them six months before he wants them to build the streets leading to the Place des Vosges. He wanted to have the, the marriage celebration ceremony for his return mm. there. And he said, open them up. I want good, perfect access so that you can see the people arriving. We'll see the place as they get there. So, Barrett, are you, are you relating to the uh, grandness of Paris from your memories of being in Paris? Absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, if I may just ask another question about the Place de Vosges, I think maybe the reason we all enjoyed, and I was listening earlier to your uh, to kind of the talking points behind it, is, is the scale. And maybe it's a smaller scale than what was built in the 19th century, and I think that there's something appealing about that. I've been told that the Place de Vosges was really the kind of the seminal, sort of the, the beginning for, for the rest of the squares of Europe. Is that accurate? It's the first planned city square in Europe with residential architecture being the focus of the square. You're absolutely right. It's the beginning. And I like what you commented there, Barrett, that it's uh, on a people's scale. They would have had grand squares elsewhere. And, and, you know, the Italian notion of the piazza goes all the way back to Roman times where people would gather in the communities. But the elegance and you know, where you want to dress up and stroll and see and be seen, uh, I think that's that's very striking about uh, Paris and the Place des Vosges. Barrett, thanks for your call. All right, thank you very much. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Joan Dijon. We're talking about her new book, How Paris Became Paris. And Lisa's on the line, calling in from Puyallup in Washington. Hi, Rick. Hi, Joan. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I think you're not going to have that much trouble selling your book because there are so many people who love Paris and are anxious for any information that will enhance their understanding of the culture and the city. So um, I think you're going to do just fine. You're right. I've been having Joan's book on my desk in my office, and I've already had to tell several people, no, you can't take that home and read it yet. I'm still working with this book. But there's, a, there's an appetite for Paris. I think that is a good, good topic. There definitely is. And um, so, Joan, I'm sure in your book you address some of the, the parks and public spaces, the places where people can walk or gather such as the areas along the Ile Saint-Louis where people can be near the water. Was that part of the grand plan also? Yes, thanks a lot for that, Lisa, and thanks for the encouragement. I need it. Um, Yes, the riverside is built up and really planned for the first time in the course of the 17th century. They develop the embankments, which before were just practical places. They developed them as walking spaces. And the first use of the modern French term for sidewalk refers to a walkway by the river, right about where the Orsay Museum is today, by the way. Can you kind of paint a visual picture of what the uh, banks of the Seine were before the embankments uh, were built? 
muddy things. I, they were not things of beauty. They were used to just to bring merchandise. The Seine is much a working river in the 17th century, so boats would dock directly there, just pull up and unload merchandise. There were tanneries along the river, which is one of the things, they, a real project to get rid of that for the smell, for the pollution in the water. So the Seine was not thought of as a thing of beauty to be appreciated. Well, that must have been a huge improvement to the city to build those embankments, and they survived today. Do they survive today pretty much the way they, they were built originally? Yes, that's amazing continuity. And it's terrific that Lisa mentioned, for example, the Ile Saint-Louis, because the Ile Saint-Louis was also built, a whole constructed island. And it's one of the places that made them think about the idea of looking, because the people on the Ile Saint-Louis built the first balconies mm. in the city, because they wanted to look out I on the river and watch balconies. people. Yes. And people would gather along the river to watch the Ile Saint-Louis. So it was that sense of walking and looking. And today, of course, the Paris has the Periplage, where they truck in yes. all this sand and hammocks and trampolines and little beach cafes. They closed down traffic and they turned the, the whole road that goes along the embankment into a beach. Uh, but any time of year, you've got the embankment landings where people go and have their picnic dinners and it's just an elegant time in the, in the twilight hours. And also they've got these new little little tiny theaters and installments of modern art and parks and people-friendly zones, and people can go have their yoga classes, and they can have impromptu dance gatherings and so on, right along the river, as if the city is trying to draw people down to the river socially. That was a real surprise for me when I was researching the book, to learn that all those kinds of entertainment have been associated with the river from the start. Hmm. For example, the minute the new bridge is built, on the bridge, people start setting up little impromptu stages, and actors would perform, and crowds would gather on the bridge to watch the performances. And then right below the bridge, I mean, they could have set up a beach anywhere in Paris, but the first public beach that I know of in the city was set up right below the bridge, and they could look at the bridge, and people from the bridge could look at them. I love it. And they start bathing boats. This conversation is inspiring me to sort of think of a new dimension of Paris, just the whole environment along the Seine. You could walk up one bank and down the other, and you've got so much history there, and you've got so much love of life today, and you've so much culture, so much people watching. What a great dimension of Paris. Well, that was one of the plans. Louis XIV said he wanted to make Paris, and I'm quoting him, a place dedicated to pleasure. And that, I think, you still have the feeling of today, and that's what you're describing. So, Lisa, if you grabbed uh, ice cream at Bertillon, I think that's probably <laughs> a handy place to get your ice cream. Yeah. What's your memory, Lisa, of the banks of the Seine? Oh, this is on our must-do list every time we go to Paris. Go and stand in line, get your ice cream in a bowl, because if you get it in the cone, it will melt too fast. Um, <laughs> and then walk over to the river and walk down that very steep, narrow little cast-iron staircase. Be really careful because you have ice cream in one hand. <laughs> and um, find a place on one of the little benches there along the river and sit and just watch the river traffic. And you might hear the sound of, uh, as you said, some musicians down the river on the bridge. And it's just a very evocative and sort of peaceful place removed from the hustle and bustle, but but totally Paris. And it's one of our favorite things to do, and your insight into Ile Saint-Louis and how it was developed will only enhance our enjoyment of it in the future. Wow. So thank you, Joan. Well, you're great. You evoke it very beautifully. Yeah, I was going to say, you. Lisa sounds like a budding travel writer. Lisa Absolutely. In, uh, from Puyallup, thanks for the call, Lisa. Thank you. Enjoy your next time to Paris. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Joan Dijon, and her new book is called How Paris Became Paris. And uh, I just love to learn more about Paris. It's a city that all of us can go back to for the rest of our lives. Can you just close by giving us an example of of something you could learn from your book that would make our visit more meaningful and, and help us better appreciate the city of light? For me, the most important thing that I realized about from the whole scope of the projects during the 17th century was the extent to which Paris had been conceived as a a walking city, a city designed for pedestrians, a city designed to help people get out and walk and appreciate the city and to enjoy a city. And so the description that both callers are making of the way they appreciate the city and feel it has a human scale and have experiences that they do on foot, that's something that was planned into Paris in the 17th century. And I think that's a pretty amazing thing for rulers in the 1600s to be doing. And that, I think, is quite wonderful. And everyone, Henry IV and Louis XIV, both were thinking about the people of Paris and their decrees constantly say, we want the people to have a place to go. We want them to have a place where they can walk. We want them to have a place where they can enjoy themselves. And that's an amazing thing that I think has continued so that people still go to Paris and feel they want to be out and about in the streets and enjoying it in the same way. So we, we're doing what Henry IV and Louis XIV wanted us to do when we tour Paris that way. Well, that's nice every once in a while to consider the positive legacy of some of these divine monarchs. Yes, yeah. yes okay. I think so. <laughs> Joan Dijon, best wishes with your book, How Paris Became Paris, and thanks for giving us a little better understanding of a city that you clearly know and love well. And thank you, Rick, for taking the time to interview me. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to France and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Paris's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next French adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.